Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Adam Holland. How are you doing? Um, well, trying to stay cool. Uh, enjoyed my fourth and ready to talk about some ducks. It's been a little bit since I talked with you. You uh, disappeared for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. Well, my wife's birthday is on the second. So um, I took her away for a birthday weekend. And then as soon as I get back, it's time for family time on the 4th of July. But uh, I'm I'm ready to go now. Uh, well, speaking of great uh, American summer pastimes, uh, you got the uh, final 2022 baseball uh, write up uh, for us. Um I figured we'd uh, uh, talk about that. Uh, you wrote actually two different articles about um, uh, writing up the Oregon baseball's run to the super regionals. Um, uh, you you uh, wrote of the 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 batting and the pitching. Um, the the batting was a, a pretty excellent performance this year. Definitely like carried the team. Um, you know, we talked about this in a previous podcast, but the thing that was you know obviously. Uh, you know, incredible batting average, um, you know, uh, uh, five players with over a 400, uh, uh, you know, batting average, um, uh, and the, the teams on base percentage, uh, you know, overall was 0.379, which is just incredible. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, what I, what I pointed out was, um, how again? How good their uh, their batting average was. Uh, we had uh, seven players on Oregon's roster that batted above three hundred. Uh, Drew Smith was at three sixty five. Drew Cowley three forty one. Bennett Thompson three forty. Um, <clears throat> and then Oregon's batting average um, as a team was just about at three hundred too. So that's um, that's like the, the you know the the impressive statistic as as we talked about most of the season just kind of like the bats being on fire um, statistically speaking uh, opponents averaged about 250 so Oregon was almost like you know uh, 0.50 points ahead uh, as far as batting average goes um, so here's what I what I did notice though um, Oregon's um, 400 percentage. Um, of getting on base. They had five players with a 400 percentage um, of getting on base. And as a team, their on base percentage was 379. So it's, it's a good one. But the difference there was the uh, opponent I saw ended with an on base percentage of 366. Uh, so if you look at that, that's, that's, you know, almost a 50 point separation when you're talking about batting average, but only a 13 point separation while getting on base. Uh, so I kind of, you know, I, I, I launched into kind of like how that could like come into play with the pitching and whatnot. Um, anybody who's seen, you know, the movie Moneyball knows of, you know, some of the hidden importance of being able to get on base. Uh, but again, what we talked about a lot in our podcast was power hitting. And so I did point that out in that the Ducks hit over a, a hundred home runs this season, which was incredible. Yeah, the the that's really the jump between 2022 and 2023 is the um is power hitting. They they jump both in the number of doubles that they like multi-base hits. It's not, you know, actually I think their total number of just hits goes down slightly compared to 2022 and in fact they strike out um 
uh, a little bit more compared to 2022. Like they're they're swinging the bat more than they were last year, but it pays off for them because they get more doubles than they did last year. Um, and which means they're getting the scoring position more, which then turns into more runs. That's just how the baseball works. You get into scoring position more, you tend to score more. Um, and second of all, yeah, uh, like 101 home runs, you know, compared to, I think it was only 75, you know, last year, which means like, that's a huge jump. Right. And you, and you calculated what well, was about 5% of the time. You yeah, know. yeah, <laughs> which is, is is pretty amazing if you think about it. That like five yeah. percent of the time they're stepping up to the plate, they're hitting it out of the park. Yeah, one out of twenty times that Oregon yeah. Duck batters stepped up to the plate, they would hit it out of the park. And like when you're on base percentage, you know, as a team, that was the other thing is that they ran you know one through nine. It's not like you know the bottom of the order, like the you know, and a lot of teams like their shortstop can't hit, but you can't get rid of your shortstop because he's your most magnificent fielder, right? Like that's what the Mendoza line is all about um like not so with drew cowley right you know drew cowley was a master of getting on base right um so when your team's you know global average you know of getting on base is 0.379 and you're hitting out of the park it means you're not you're you're not only getting a guaranteed run you're you know a, a huge amount of the time you're getting you know multiple run home runs right yeah. um you know you're, you're you're clearing the board with them um you know in oregon you know managed their lineup well so that you know they were getting home run hitters you know at multiple points during the lineup you know to clear the bases you know which was pretty you know it was obviously you know sweet uh, uh like yeah you know and it's something that we talked about on this podcast over and over and over again. It's like power hitting is the most important stat in baseball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, it's uh, th- that was what I pretty much attributed uh, their success to this year, as as we had discussed many times, as far as the power hitting. Um, I did compare, you know, like I said, in the batting uh, article, just some of their opponents' batting averages, just as kind of like a precursor to the the, the pitching one, which, uh, let's face it, my, my pitching analysis was probably like double the length of the batting one. <laughs> the batting one was pretty yeah. easy to figure out. It's just like, yeah, we, we, we hit well, we knock it out of the park, you know, guys get on base, it's, it's good stuff. Um, kind of as a prelude to the, uh, to the batting one, like I said, I kind of pointed out the, you know, the difference in um, the the on-base percentage. But then I also pointed out that, you know, if Oregon's hitting 5% of the time, they're hitting a home run as they step up to the plate. Problem was their opponents uh, averaged 4% of the time hitting a home run as they step to the plate. So they're like right behind them. And that kind of like leewayed into like what I was talking about with the pitching stats. But I mean, what your article demonstrated statistically was – and this was important to do. And I, you know, I'm glad you did it. You know, it's not like, you know, Oregon made it to the super regionals and then lost in heartbreaking fashion. And then, you know, we ran away from it and didn't want to think about it. No, we, we, we stepped up to the plate too. And we wrote an article about, you know, Hey, let's break down these, these batting stats to make sure that this wasn't an illusion. And you demonstrated it was an illusion and demonstrated a couple of important points. Number one, 
that they did in fact outbat their opponents. Like this wasn't an illusion. It wasn't like they got, you know, lucky or, you know, or, or just like put strung together hits at the right times, you know, to make it to the super regionals, uh, you know, and it was sort of a fluke. No, it wasn't. They out hit their opponents, which like, if you out hit your opponents, that means that you win games, right? That's how all sports work. If you score more points than your opponents, you win. Um, uh, uh, so yes, correct. Um, you know, number two that like, you know, you demonstrated that specifically it was power hitting that increased, um, which like, look, man, if everything, I'm not saying that the rest of the team went to hell cause that's not true, but like, if the rest of your team is going to hell, but you do one thing well and you, you know, improve in one stat, you know, Oregon 2023 is here to demonstrate, make it power hitting, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. you, That's you know, uh, what carried them throughout the entire season. Yeah. It, improve your power hitting almost at all costs. Um, because that's a, the, you can be a one stat team, um, in baseball, not quite. I mean, that, that's an, that's an exaggeration. I, I don't mean that, but like you can be, you can have one stat be prominent and other stats be like, worrisome um and still make it to the super regionals if your prominent stat is power hitting and you can even take a step back in, in other aspects of batting like strikeouts and still go further than you did the previous season if you're power hitting better yeah um uh, now and your pitching can get worse which it did that's the thing that you demonstrated statistically um you know not i think that anybody needed statistical uh convincing of this but uh you know you yeah. you did <laughs> demonstrate it like pitching got worse um yeah. you know compared to to last year, you know, and of, and of course it did, you know, they were, uh, uh, you know, their stud from, from last year, Aeon, uh, you know, didn't pitch at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they sort of developed a guy who was looking like a stud for a few games, Jay Stofall. Yeah. Um, uh, that they then lost, you know, from April 28th onwards, which was, you know, all of the crucial games, yeah. uh, you mm -hmm. know, the entire postseason, yeah. um, and, and the end of the regular season. Um, and I, I, I pointed out why, you know, statistically Stofall was kind of like, you know, our, our, our top gunner just because, yeah. you, you know, you have to take into account uh win loss record and their, uh, ERA. And then, like, you know, there's a couple other guys like, you know, like Umlaut, for example, who, you know, had a good ERA, but like pitched so, you know, infrequently that like it, it's you know, sort of like his statistics are probably a bit of an illusion, you know, or, or, or like, you know, you can't rely on it. I mean, yeah. like basically the the strategy that Oregon pursued was they had like nine freshmen and they just mm -hmm. like threw them against the wall, you know, like every yeah. game they just emptied the bullpen where it was, you know, it was like they were, they, they would have like two guys pitch yeah. uh, or, or excuse me, a, a guy would pitch for like two innings and they bring in the next guy and they bring in the next guy. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, yeah, the ERA situation I, I did point out was actually like, though it, it definitely needs improvement and it's a, like an issue. It, it wasn't like hopeless. It wasn't like horrible, at least not statistically. 
Um, so, you know, we were kind of like, like hovering, hovering in, you know, like close to average, but still like in the needs improvement range. Uh, the biggest, yeah, we- the biggest problem I think I pointed out, um, was that the, uh, the, 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 the amount of runs given up and yeah. in the, in the, uh, the total totality of the season, postseason included, they gave up double digit runs 20% of the time. And that, I think, uh, as far as the statistics that I went over in this article, that was probably the most concerning one to me. I mean, but the, the yeah, I mean, there were a couple of games that just sort of let get away from them, you know, like the where, you know, it's interesting because you're right, like the, you, you computed their global, like their total season long ERA at 5.28, which is not a great ERA, but actually... First of all, it's not nearly as bad as I was expecting it to be. No, um, me neither. You know, That's considering was, all like yeah. the wailing and moaning that we were doing, pleasantly surprised um, by it actually. And and second of all, um, uh, you know, worth keeping in mind, college baseball ERAs have been steadily climbing over the last like five years or so. Um, just like you know, college baseball has been getting more offensive friendly. Um, uh, you know. Partly there's been some rule changes and partly just like, you know, they just batters have been getting better. Um, so like, you know, the old standard of like, if you're not, you know, pitching below three, you know, you're a garbage bullpen. It's sort of like that rule is getting like, that's, that's no longer a hard and fast rule. Um, so like, you know, 5.28 ERA is actually not, you know, I mean, it definitely needs improvement, but it's like, it's, you know, I was expecting you to, you know, find that it was something like six or seven. I was going to be like, um, and, and, you know, the other thing is that, you know, all, all things considered with, with all the, with all the freshmen, like, Hey, the freshmen got a lot of experience, you know, like that, that's definitely something that I expect to come down with, you know, better health next year. And with these guys being sophomores, um, you know, there's like, I guess I'll put it this way. And this is like a really dangerous thing to say. I, I realize cause I'm like tempting fate here, but like, this is about as bad as it could have gotten. Right. Like, can you imagine a worse situation than you have two different aces go down and you have to play nothing but freshmen? Like, I mean, I, I, I can't like qualitatively, I can't describe a worse situation for your bullpen to be in. And they still pitched at a five two eight, so like it can only get better than this. I mean, realistically speaking, obviously I can't predict the horrible things that I just opened the door to by jinxing it and saying that. But you know, like, like qualitatively, like it, it can't help but be a better situation in twenty twenty four, right? Yeah, uh, and I kind of pointed that out uh, to finish up the article on a positive note uh, that when you're looking at a team that you know, like you said kind of like Murphy's Law, everything that could go wrong did as far as pitching, and that team ends up only a few outs away from Omaha, then, like, even if you get, you know, kind of, like, mild improvement, not even, like, you know, quantitative improvement, but just, like, you know, a little jump, you're looking at a very legit team. And so that's, you know, exactly how I ended it, and that's kind of exactly how I'm feeling heading into 2024. All right, let's take a break. Uh, When we come back, uh, we'll talk some football. Okay, 
So uh, we had a two-part article between you and Badwater covering uh, the history of Oregon senior quarterbacks. Uh, he sort of did the ancient history portion <laughs> of it, and and you got to talk about some of the more recent uh, Oregon quarterbacks. Um, you uh, you you got to start with the the great one, Joey Harrington. Uh, um, how'd you draw that one between <laughs> you and Badwater? Um, well, basically, we talked. And uh, kind of like, you know, went over, um, you know, which ones to do. And I I had the idea that since, you know, he was older and knew more and had experienced more of Oregon football personally over his lifetime, that he would probably be better set on, you know, writing up the ones that he'd actually watched, as opposed to me, who had just kind of like heard about them and really didn't see much Ducks football until around the Achilles Smith era. Um that being the case, I thought it was good for me to move forward, starting with Joey, because that's around the time that I really started taking a vested interest in Oregon football and becoming like a real big fan. And so <clears throat> with my uh, OCD nature uh, regarding sports, I was able to kind of just like draw upon a lot of memories that I had of just watching these seasons unfold and watching these players compete. And uh, most of most of what I wrote was just kind of like my memories of watching that. Now, you know, I'm, I'm journalistic integrity. I obviously had everything up to make sure I was I was fact checking and I wasn't you know spewing garbage here. But yeah, that was the fun part about it was uh, just kind of like going over like what I had witnessed each player do. Um, I could go, kind of go over like a brief recap real quick of, of uh, what you know I kind of summarized each player up as. Um, with Joey, you're looking at somebody that, like, especially by today's standards, if you look back at his statistics, and I know you're a statistics guy, you probably aren't going to be overly impressed looking at the stat sheets. Uh, but the the fact of the matter was, was that the guy was just a straight-up winner. And when he was on the field, Oregon was winning. And they, they won at a level that, you know, Hitherto, before he showed up, they had never won before. Uh, moving forward on to Kellen Clemens. That was a situ- oh, no. Hold on. I mean, Joey. The thing, like the the three, the thing about Joey Harrington is that maybe more than anybody else. Although actually, the next, the other two that you're about to talk about, Clemens and Dixon, also do too. Is that like he demonstrates the premise of you guys writing this article series, which was going into you know Bone Nicks. It, which was Bo Nix coming back for his senior year mm-hmm. and examining whether Oregon quarterbacks get a bump in their senior year because hell yeah, Joey Harrington really did. Like he really did play substantially better in his senior year than he did, you know, up to it. Like his completion percentage jumps by six whole percentage yeah. points, you know, like it's, it's huge. Um, you know, his, his, his like, and he goes from like his junior year where, you know, his touchdown to interception ratio is 22 to 14, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, with, you know, about a three to two, yeah. you know, touchdown to interception ratio. It goes in his senior year, it goes to 27 to six, yeah. right. Which is, you know, uh, uh, like four and a half to, to one, you know, like it's like a crazy how much better his touchdown to interception ratio, you know, improves proves his senior year like uh you know but it's like you know watching him qualitatively but you know he's the same quarterback he's just more refined and like in command um in, in a way that like yeah that's what you get out of a senior quarterback is like the that that last refinement um 
and and like yeah i can't think of a better example than joey harrington like he's the poster child no pun intended because he did have a giant poster yeah. in new york <laughs> <laughs> but he's a poster child for this project in terms of like that's what you get out of a senior mm-hmm. so you get it's the same guy but the most like refined version of him yes and yeah he was a he yeah, was a, totally. a perfect guy to to, to start uh, the article out with for sure especially considering what he did during his senior season and the way he was able to go out. Um, The next two, uh, Clemens and Dixon, were interesting in the sense that, uh, you know, although they both were peaking at their at their senior years, uh, both unfortunately ended their senior years on the bench or on the sidelines due to injuries. Mm. Um, What Clemens was able uh, to do in 2005, once the spread option was instituted, was uh, pretty significant, and I, you know, I pointed out that at the time of his injury, he had nearly 2,500 yards passing and a, a 19 touchdown to four interception ratio at that point. Uh, so he was he was really churning it out at kind of like a record breaking pace at the time. And uh, unfortunately, the same thing was true of Dennis. Um, he he had the team on a complete roll. Um, he, at the time of his injury, also had like a 20 touchdown to four interception ratio. Um, he was actually, at the time, uh, I'm not sure of the exact statistics on it, but a lot of, of major sportscasters were predicting that he was the front runner for the Heisman at the time of his injury. And so um, it was nice to be able to uh, talk to him a little bit, like I said in the article, that I, you know, I, I would see him from time to time at the Coin Studios and be able to chat with him. Uh, now, you know, since I was already in the middle of work and everything, I couldn't really just pull him aside and be like, Hey, do an hour long sit down interview with me, man. But like, I did ask him about some of his favorite memories and I was able to kind of like throw in the one in Husky stadium, which was interesting because I remember even watching that myself and laughing at how he faked out the entire camera crew and the commentators and everything. Uh, so then you uh, you have Clemens and Dixon who just like absolutely were peaking at the uh, at the right time at their senior years due to the institution of the spread offense, and then the institution of Chip Kelly's blur offense, which just suited Dennis perfectly. Uh, like I said, after that you had a little bit of a drop off uh, as far as senior quarterbacks. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of it just due to the success that they experienced. Uh, Masoli, well, I mean, that wasn't just success. That was also some uh, laptop incidents. But uh, uh, mm. when you look at like Darren Thomas and, and, and of course, you know, the, uh, the man, Marcus Mariota, you're, you know, you're talking about like they just, you know, they had so much success at that point that they were able to move forward after their junior seasons. Um, then I came to Vernon Adams Jr., who I wrote a lot about just well, – but- Hold on, before you get to Vernon Adams, but like Kellen Clemens and Dennis Dixon, you know, they're also Joey Harrington like in that, you know, big statistical jump. You know, you you mentioned their 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 touchdown to interception ratios, which like, you know, just like Joey Harrington, like big jumps, you know, between their junior years and their senior years. Yes. Right. You know, like uh, you know, especially in terms of just cutting down on interceptions, right? Oh, yeah. Um, like even though even though Kellen Clemens played like three fewer games, you know, he he only had three fewer touchdowns uh, in, in 2005 than he did in 2004, but he had six fewer interceptions. Like he goes from 22 and 10 to 19 and four, and and also like his completion percentage goes up by like more than five points. His like yards per attempt goes up by a yard and a half. You know, it's just like he's the same quarterback 
but just better. Like he, he you know, like his, if you look at his, like his freshman, sophomore, junior years, it's like it, that points us, paints a certain trajectory. And then it, and then his senior year, it's like a hockey stick. It's like a, you know, hockey stick that you, that you laid on the, on its, on its, on the shaft. And then like his senior year, it's like, boom, you know, it, it's this big jump. And then same thing with Dixon, like, even though it's abbreviated by, by a couple of games, it's like, you know, he, he threw more interceptions than touchdowns his junior year. Mm-hmm. And then his scene, you know, it was 12 to 14, his junior yeah, year. The, and the then it's for 20 Dixon was one of the most incredible turnarounds I've ever seen. I mean, like, I, like, I mean, just in incre- 12 to 14 touchdown to interception is as a junior and then 20 to four yeah. as a senior. I mean, this, like, this, I mean, this that's is a guy who bonkers. lost his starting job to Brady Leaf, who was, who yeah. wasn't even an option quarterback. Yeah, like almost two yards an attempt better, you know, almost, you know, uh, six, five, five and a half, you know, complete uh, p- points better in terms of completion percentage. Just like, yeah. And, and as with two fewer games, you know, it's just yeah. like, yeah, the, both, you know, all three of the, you know, Joey, Kellen and De- Dennis, like all of them are just like huge statistical jumps in their senior year. And not just like huge compared between their junior and their senior year, but all, but like, but like those guys had, like all all of those guys were four year players. I mean, Joey just barely played in 2018, but enough to record some stats. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you look at their progression, like freshman, sophomore, junior paint a certain like line, and then senior is not the fourth point on that line. Yeah. It's somewhere way higher. Oh, yeah. You know, and like I said, I I, I think the uh, the uh, offensive schemes had a lot to do with that. You saw sure. that, you know, Clemens just flourished much more in, a, in an, in an open spread option kind of thing. Whereas Dixon was just like tailor made for that warp speed stuff sure. that Chip Kelly was doing. And I, and I wanted to stop you before you got into Adams. Cause that's not, it's not really true of Adams because Adams goes from the FCS yeah. to the FBS. And actually his stats get worse at, you know, if you look at his Eastern Washington in 2014 stats compared to his Oregon in 2015 stats, I mean, his Oregon in 2015 stats are incredible. I mean, his passer rating is like 179, which is like the best on this, like the, he's one of the the best in terms of passer rating that Oregon's ever going to see because he was just a bonkers passer like he was hitting these bombs constantly um but like if you look at his eastern washington stats like it's even like he threw 35 touchdowns to eight interceptions at eastern washington in 2014 which is like are you kidding me like um you know, and his completion percentage at Eastern Washington was 66%. You know, it's just like you're not going to touch his Eastern Washington no. stats, but he's throwing against FCS defenses. Exactly. So it's like, and he's throwing, you're he's not throwing the Cooper the Cup. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're not going to see the same sort of like statistics. No, but, uh, you know, phenomenon. What I thought was interesting about Vernon Adams, too, and that, uh, you know, that I gave him lots of credit for was kind of unfortunately a sign of the times under Coach Helfrich. Um, I think you know the you know the the first couple of years he was there, Helfrich did a great job of kind of maintaining what Kelly had built, just by kind of like running the same thing with most of the players that Kelly had brought on board. Um, Twenty fifteen was kind of like the end of like the Kelly recruits. That was kind of like when you know you had like your your last batch of guys from that era, and I think that. As, as much as that season was fun in the turnaround that they made after Adams came healthy, 
It also was a concern and it showed that Oregon was absolutely 100% a night and day team if they didn't have an explosive dynamic quarterback. And so the importance yeah. of it. Yeah, I mean, like Adams was like making up. Yeah, plays, that's what I mean. Know, and like, so he, he, he was literally. At least just, in the passing game. Yeah, I mean, he was the difference between Oregon being Oregon and, and Oregon being like Oregon of 2016. And so like, I mean, honestly, like I actually really like, I, I tend to disagree with that. The, the framing of like Mark Helfrich didn't know how to run an offense. I actually really liked a lot of the, inno- like schematic innovation stuff that Mark Helfrich was doing. And I still think yeah. that he's like at, at, in terms of just like, I mean, just like as a playbook designer type of guy, like I, I think that he's as at, at least as much of a genius as Mar- as chip kelly was it's just like the recruiting, the recruiting thing, thing. You totally yeah. nailed it it's just like the dude could not run the personnel yeah, aspect exactly. of that team you know at all and, and like yeah he totally needed vernon adams to make sh- stuff up yeah. and so <laughs> i think like i said you know vernon kind of gets lost in the mix a little bit because he came right after mariota but like what he was able to contribute in like two thirds of one season was amazing. So uh, definitely give the guy credit where it's due. Uh, then I, then I, you know, stumbled onto Herbert, which is just one of those kind of like Hollywood tales, you know, this, this yeah, skinny right. little gangly freshman, you know, has to be thrown into the mix for a team that's struggling mightily. His, his first start is like one of the most lopsided losses in Oregon history against one of the you know worst rivals. Like, you know, everything that, that could go wrong does, you know, to start. And then even in his, you know, sophomore season, he misses like a good chunk of the season with his with his broken collarbone. And it's just, you know, you start to wonder if this, you know, if, if like, God, the potential's there, man. Can we ever just get this guy on track? And kind of like- his his statistics are so bizarre, though, because like, well, he basically he has he he goes through three different head coaches, right? He has like the tail end, uh, you know, as a true freshman, he gets half a season, you know, in which Mark Helfrich is going to get fired. And, you know, so that's weird. Um, but he still puts on a pretty good f- performance with like a 150 passer rating. And then it jumps under the one season uh, of Willie Taggart, but then he breaks his collarbone and it, and he doesn't really play the best teams. Like it's the first half of the season. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just this big jump to 167. And then, he has a like for by his standards anyway, like a bad 2018 because um, it was like the worst of Marcus Arroyo. Yeah. Uh, like it was before Marcus Arroyo decided to put RPOs in his playbook, which is just like, wow. Um, uh, uh, and, and then 2019, the Rose Bowl season, he jumps back up, you know, and, and so it's like unlike the first three guys we talked about, Harrington, Clemens and Dixon where it's like the hockey stick thing mm-hmm. for him. It's this roller coaster oh, yeah. where it's like bad, good, bad. Actually it's more like average, good, average, good. Um, but that's, it's like the scheme and his health rather than, you know, that's just like Justin Herbert finally just had a nice good year where he had like an, a playbook that made sense and uh, some continuity and he stayed healthy. And so Justin Herbert just got to be a good Justin Herbert, yeah. you yeah. know, and, uh, you know, I pointed that out. I said, you know, finally, for the first time since Joey, we had a senior quarterback who not only, you know, 
put up great you know statistics but got that that hollywood ending that everybody had been hoping for you know dashing for the go-ahead touchdown in the rose bowl and then completing the you know final pass that ran out the clock and ending it with a rose between your teeth under confetti and everything he yeah he he definitely had the ending we were hoping for i mean he i think he could have got like that one is more like yeah, like you said, it's more like the story tale, you know, the fairy tale story aspect of it, because it's like, I think he could have gotten drafted. Oh, he, yeah, like everybody saw the physical you yeah. know, potential that he had, but it was like, I think he just really wanted to do it because he was an Oregon oh, yeah. guy. No, and and I, he, I he sort out. of knew yeah. that his, he was a, his, like his Oregon career was messed up, yeah. you know, because it was like three different, you know, because his th- first three years were three different coaches and he was hurt and it was like messy and he was like, you know what? I can actually do this as a senior. And then he did. And it was like, yeah, man, that was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, because like, un- like I said, unlike the first three guys that we talked about that really sort of needed that senior year to take that jump. He, I don't think he did. I really think that that was Justin Herbert kind of, I mean, not, not from the get go, get go. That, that wasn't really him, his, his freshman year, but sort of like he, he was that guy kind of all along. He just didn't have an opportunity to show it until his senior year. Yeah. And then rather than leaving us wondering about that, the whole, you know, for the rest of our lives, he just actually did. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said, I think, you know, just going to Sheldon High School, growing up a duck fan, he was he was so like immersed in, in, in being a duck that I think that played heavily into his choice. Because as I pointed out, after the 2018 season, they were already saying like, oh, yeah, he's got the size, he's got the pocket presence, he's got the arm. This could be, a you know, an NFL pick. So it was it was great to see him come back. And finish off on a high note like that. Um, then I uh, jumped forward to the uh, uh, predecessor to Mr. Nix, who is uh, Anthony Brown Jr. And uh, much during the, I mean, the 2020 season was so just different and weird that, like, I, you know, yeah, I didn't right. really put like a whole lot of thought into it. Um, but um, essentially, like. I like most of what I was looking at was the 2021 season. And so again, uh, you know, di- different people have, have agreed or disagreed with me on that. I know you and I talked about it, you know, a couple times before too. In, in, in my humble opinion, uh, Anthony Brown was just kind of a, uh, he was a game managing play it safe kind of quarterback who really got kind of like a lot of heat that maybe wasn't necessarily warranted considering the level of success they had that year. Um, I think that it was kind of like a situational thing in that, like I mentioned, for for majority of the season, he was, you know, doing exactly what he was supposed to do. And Oregon was like right there in the mix of things. They were right, you know, they were in the in the in the college football playoff mix. They had upset Ohio State in the horseshoe, you know, like and then you have these couple games against Utah where Utah just kind of obliterates Oregon in both games and just ruins any chance of mm-hmm. them, you know, even getting to a BCS game. Um, but then, you, you know, you're, you're talking like that is when Brown had his uh, like statistically worst games of the season was against Utah. And so I think it was a matter of kind of like, oh, gosh, he, he, he failed us when we needed him most. As opposed to kind of like, well, wait a minute. I mean, you know, there's 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 more people on the roster than just him. So, 
Uh, I don't know what your thoughts about it. My my final analysis of him was that he was a, he was a, a trustworthy quarterback that made the smart plays that just did what he was supposed to do. But since he wasn't dynamic or explosive or what of that, he was kind of overlooked as far as like, oh, he had a good senior year. But I mean, realistically, he did have a good senior year. I mean, for the for the purposes of this project, like his. I mean, discounting 2020 because it was the, you know, the the crazy, you know, he played in two games and they were weird. Yeah. His senior year was his best season. Like it was better than any season he played at Boston College. He passed for more yards. He had a higher completion percentage. Um, you know, his he, uh, like it, the the thing, you know, about his time, this three years at Boston College was that he had ACL pro- like knee problems, mm-hmm. uh, you know, every year. Yeah. You know, he he was like a three year starter, but he didn't finish any of the years. Um, and the other thing to you know about his Boston because I wrote up all of his tape at Boston College um, b- before he he well, a- after he transferred to Oregon while we were still waiting for the season to start because it was delayed due to COVID. Mm-hmm. So I had like extra time. So I, I went and watched all the film. Uh the thing was, he it was a completely different offensive scheme than Joe Moorhead's scheme. It was like they had uh, uh, A.J. Dillon, you know, the great running back, and it was totally like a play action. It was like run, 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 play action bomb. Yeah. So like all of his passes were play action bombs. Mm-hmm. And like it was he was not a running quarterback. He was not an RPO quarterback. He was not a spread option quarterback. He was doing nothing that looked anything at all like Joe Moorhead's uh, playbook. He was a hand the ball off, hand the ball off, hand the ball off, hand the ball off, you know, uh, and then hit a deep bomb, like a beautiful deep bomb. Um, and I was like, wow, this guy can really throw it deep, which like, you must think I'm crazy for saying that, you know, knowing that like the dude could not throw the ball deep at all during 2021. Like it was crazy that his deep ball just like completely vanished. Mm-hmm. Like everything about his 2021 season was like insane. If you go and watch his, his Boston college tape, cause he's like, why did you get this quarterback given that like, and then ask him to play in Joe Moorhead's offense? Cause it's like a completely different offense. Like you could uh, like, it would be very difficult for me to figure out a, a more opposite offense than, yeah. <laughs> or for a quarterback, like number that. one. And then number two, if you, that if like uh, you asked me, okay, what's the one skill that, that Anthony Brown would excel at? Um, you know, like I wouldn't, or, or, or you said, like, what's the one skill that Anthony Brown would not have at Oregon? And you'd be like cursing his name for not being able to do. I would never in a million years guess he wouldn't have a deep ball because that was the one thing he was yeah. doing at Boston college it was the most like insane thing. Like that, you know, so that was totally crazy too. Um, and, uh, uh, and then here's the other thing that was just bonkers, like, and is why I think that Joe Moorhead is a really fantastic offensive coordinator. And I disagreed with you when you said you thought he was a game manager, because I don't think that's accurate. Um, is that like his completion percentage was 64.1, which is pretty good. But like, the problem is his incompletion rate was way higher than it should have been. Like he should have been something like a 72% completion percentage in 2021 Mm -hmm. um because like he was still inaccurate which was bonkers like he it's like that's so it's so crazy like to say like he was 64 percent completion percentage but that still wasn't good enough and like my biggest complaint with the guy was his inaccuracy because like 
That's yeah. <laughs> those are crazy stats, but like, it's true. I had to watch that. You know, I watched all of that film and it was just like the dude would just like inexplicably throw. And I'm not talking about deep throws either. I'm talking about like bread and butter yeah. throws, just like short to intermediate passes, just like throw the ball at the dude's feet. It was like, what is happening? Um, and the, I could go on for a long time speculating about why that would be. I'm just saying that that's what happened. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's not that he was, you know, they were asking him to, to be a game manager. It's that he would like, it would be third down and it's time to like extend the drive and complete this easy throw that they would give him. And then he would just like th- throw it behind the receiver. And it's like, Anthony, what the yeah. are you doing? Something, something, and, something and, happened to him mentally during the course. of that. Yeah. I don't, sure. I really don't, I don't know where his deep ball went. I don't know where, and it's like, it's weird because his accuracy goes up as a product of the scheme, mm-hmm. right? Cause it's like, if you're, all you're doing is throwing deep balls, your, your accuracy is not going to be super high. Cause like those are harder throws to complete. Um, but like, you know, b- but it's like, it should have been way higher and I don't know what happened. Um, like it's just bizarre. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. And so then when Bo Nix comes in, it's like, th- that's what I wound up sort of writing every week, or at least the first couple of weeks when it was, uh, when we were all still in like breathing a sigh of relief because he's not Anthony Brown, yeah. is it sort of like this is the thing that Bo Nix gets you? I mean, he gets you other things, but like the the difference, the, the, the like this is the difference maker thing, is that like he makes the throws that he's supposed to make. You know, yeah. he just like act. He is an accurate passer, mm-hmm. which like shouldn't which which shouldn't sound like the most amazing thing or like sigh of relief thing in the world throws the ball where it's supposed to be yeah, but it's, like, it's an yeah, important thing and we found out against washington yeah. we found out against washington state that bo nix was clutch too you know yeah. i mean we already kind of knew he was from some of the stuff we'd seen at auburn but we were like is he going to be clutch for oregon and he was and so but still to the to the point of this you know senior quarterback thing it was still the case that his senior year was his best year mm-hmm. you know it was it, you know it was his best completion percentage it was his best touchdown to interception Absolutely. rate it was you know there was a lot of self possession he beat ohio state in the horseshoe mm-hmm. you know like yeah man um well you know cuz that's what you get when you get a senior quarterback yeah. and so we're all looking forward to Bo Nix's senior. Absolutely. Year. I mean, if if Bo Nix's last quote senior year was any any sort of, I mean, <clears throat> obviously we're nitpicking. You know, we're Duck fans, and we're gonna we're gonna do this. But you you know, you wonder had he not gotten hurt against Washington, is 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 that a win? Yeah. Is you know what yeah. I mean? Did it did it play psychologically into the Civil War thing? Which the Civil War thing was a lot harder to explain oh, <laughs> than yeah. just Nix getting hurt. That was just one of those ones where it's like. I, Really hard to explain. Uh, I mean, really, you know, defense and special yeah. teams has the the, the know, Washington like the Washington game. That. I, you could look directly at Knicks and just be like, it was literally a duel between two. Oh two, yeah. Two I mean, if they punch level that quarterbacks and like one of those elite level quarterbacks got hurt for a couple series. Yeah. I mean, if they punch that, that that play in which he gets hurt, if instead they punch that in and get a touchdown, Oregon is up by 11 points and there's no way that Washington wins. It's impossible for Washington to win the game. Because even if Washington scores, Oregon just runs the ball and and wins. Yeah. I mean, neither, neither Um, team could stop the other from scoring. So that was what it was going to be that game. Yeah. But what, but more importantly, Washington to, to the point of Oregon going up by two scores that late in the game is that Washington also couldn't stop Oregon 
Oregon from running, which meant Oregon could just eat the rest of the clock the instant they went up by two scores. So like, yeah, of course, Nick's getting hurt at that point in the game was like the defining. And then Oregon deciding to kick a field goal, which I think was the like the worst strategic decision that Dan Lanning made all year long was kicking that field goal. Um all right, that uh, let's take a break there. Uh, we come back. We'll uh, talk about Oregon's 2023 season instead of their 2022 season. So my duck dive season uh, series has finally come to an end. I wrote up my uh, the the 12th and final article, which is as it always is, is on the Oregon Ducks, um, but in the same format that I do every other team with the same uh, statistical comparisons, the same charting, uh, uh, methodology, um, the same, uh, uh, system by which I, I go through and, and project who the returners are and list who all the departures are and what the production losses are and, and who I think, you know, the, the starters and the backups are likely to be. And so therefore, you know, where the points of vulnerability and depth are going to be with the roster, you know, I, I evaluate what I think the roster management has been and where, and I read some tea leaves about like, Oh, I, you know, I think they sort of maybe messed up here and, and there and whatever. And, um, I'll just say right off the bat, I do think that Oregon did a very good job of roster management, you know, compared to the other 11 teams that I, you know, evaluated. I don't see um, sort of the, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time. This is the fifth straight year that I've been doing this. So this is the 60th article, you know, that I've written in this. And I've gotten to identify a lot of the pitfalls that Pac-12 coaches fall in. Um you know, in terms of roster management where they fall into like class imbalances or, you know, they, they fail to load up with enough players at a position. So they wind up like betting on certain guys. Um, and, and like what happens if he doesn't work out, oops, we don't have anybody else, you know, or like we don't have enough experience at this position, you know, or, or we don't have enough talent at this position, or we kept around a bunch of like career bench warmers, you know, so that, uh, uh, you know, I, I wasted a bunch of scholarships on guys I shouldn't be wasting scholarships on, so I'm not developing enough guys. So there's a bunch of different traps. And when I go through Oregon's roster, it's like none of the traps. They, they didn't step in a single trap. Um, and it's the only team I can say that about, uh, you know, that I didn't detect a single trap. Um, that doesn't mean that I think that they're not taking some risks at a couple of positions. I think they are. Um, or, you know, at a couple of positions where I think their depth is less than a couple other teams. So most notably quarterback, you know, um, they're, uh, you know, I think that Bo Nix is one of the best quarterbacks in this league. And that's saying something because this is a a league that's got a bunch of great quarterbacks, but if Bo Nix is unavailable, you know, their options are Ty Thompson or the true freshman Austin Novosad. And that's just not as deep as like Arizona state or Washington, you know, where they have like, you know, Washington, you know, their backup for Michael Penix is Dylan Morris, who's a former starter. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't know who Arizona state is going to start, but they have like a super talented true freshman in Jaden Rashada and two guys who are former starters, you know, Borgay and Drew Pine from Notre Dame, you know, like Oregon doesn't have that, you know, if Bonix gets hurt, like they're really, really in trouble. Um, so like, yeah, you know, that's an issue. Um, and then, uh, you know, tight end, uh, they're, you know, uh, um, uh, Ferguson's injury uh, means that like, if he's not healthy by fall, 
um, which like we don't know. They've been very quiet about that. It's sort of like, oh, we're sort of, you know, let's find out like how, how that goes. You know, they, they sort of had to grab some guys late through the transfer portal who were lower talent, uh, you know, Casey Kelly from Ole Miss, um, for example. So like that may sort of constrain their options and you just sort of have to cross your fingers that, that, that Ferguson gets healthier or, or, or Patrick Herbert, Justin's little brother, um, you know, works out. Uh, that's sort of a gamble position, unlike a bunch of others where it's sort of like, oh, you know, they've layered this out well. But like but like wide receiver, for example, is a position where they've layered it out really well. Um, so like, you know, they have one outside receiver that is, who, who's a sure bet, you know, because he's the, you know, Tr- Troy Franklin is proven and he's, you know, got, you know, he had like 61, you know, catches last year or whatever. They need another outside guy. Yeah. Well, there are two options at outside is either uh, a one of four super talented freshmen um, or Chris Hudson, who's like 5'11", but has a bunch of experience playing inside or outside. So like either one of the freshmen works out, which I would rate high odds because there's four of them. That's like definitely enough that like somebody ought to pop. But if none of them do, you have Chris Hudson. Mm -hmm. But if somebody does, you can move Chris Hudson, you know, back inside where he's probably a little better to suit, yeah. you know, but, you know, if you do have to move Hudson outside because none of your freshmen pop, then that's fine because they loaded up it at inside receiver two. Mm-hmm. They have Treshawn Holden, who's a big wide receiver at six, three, and they got Tez Johnson and they got Gary Bryant, yeah. who are very, uh, you know, who are excellent, you know, slot receivers. So they're not they're not losing any inside receiver production or like harming themselves really in any way. If they have to move Hudson from the inside to the outside, because their freshman options aren't panning out. So like, that's what I mean by like, they layered their options so that they have like a plan a and a plan B and a plan C and like their plan C is better than most teams plan a, you know, like that's, that's the kind of like good roster management that's like you don't see that at other teams you see what you see at other teams is like we have one guy to fill this position i sure hope he works out mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like because if he doesn't uh yeah and it's just like it's a little scary it's a real long uh yeah because we've seen know? that happen before all of, all of you know 20 uh 2017 and 2007 and yeah. you know it's like or 2018, where they had one wide yeah. receiver, Dylan Mitchell, and that yeah, was it. You know, that's not what Oregon's looking at. Or offensive line, where there's a lot of question marks because they lost four, you know, starters off a very good line. Well, you know, the way that they were rotating last year and the way that they were using like six man sets meant that A, Josh Connerly, their five star as a true freshman, got a bunch of reps. So he's going to slot in as your starting left tackle, but he won't be a greenhorn. Um, it meant that you had three. Uh, like this was crazy. I didn't think that Adrian Clem, the former offensive line coach was going to continue Alex Mirabal, the, the previous, previous guys, uh, offensive line coach. He was doing a bunch of rotations that started in the COVID season in 2020. I thought that would come to an end in 2022. Cause it's like, okay, we're two years removed from the pandemic. Like you don't need to keep up with these, you know, constant rotations. So he's like, no, I'm going to still do it at the guards. So we had a four man rotation, a planned rotation at the guard spots and only one of them left Ryan walk. So the, the other three guys, Marcus Harper, uh, Jackson Powers Johnson, and uh, and Stephen Jones, all got a bunch of reps. They all have more than 200 reps, and Harper has 400. So, you know, uh, 
like in series, like meaningful reps. I'm not talking about garbage time. I mean, like real, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. series series minutes. So it's like, so between Connerly, uh, Harper, Powers, uh, Johnson, you know, who's who's likely to be the center. Um, it's like you've got like four of your starters ready to go who were basically, you know, playing starting level minutes last year or like, you know, th- you know, close to it's like, yeah, OK. And then on top of that, they went and, you know, they, they, they were fairly active getting new players. You know, they got uh, Johnny Cornelius, you know, the, the super highly rated, you know, right tackle from Rhode Island. They got George Silva, who's a blue chip Juco, you know, who's a starter for two years w- with his junior college uh, for the right tackle competition. Um, they uh, they got um, Junior Angelau from Texas, who is a four star. They got Nishad Struther, who's a three year starter for ECU, who's a guard, you know, for that competition or just in case, you know, some folks aren't healthy and then they've got a couple of um returning backups uh you know for tackle and guard and faupe lolu and uh Dave Uli, you know who uh um who've been on the team for a little while and who were getting you know backup minutes last year so it's like they run 10 deep you know and mixed between guards and tackles and in the case of steven jones a guy who could play guard or tackle um and it's like, this is so much different than like UCLA who like also sent like, I think three guys to the NFL, like Oregon did off of their offensive line. But the way that Chip Kelly did dealt with it was he got three transfers and nobody else like didn't go get a bunch of other guys too. And those three transfers are like a two star and a couple of th- low three stars. And they come in late, you know, like, and, uh, and he's just going to plug them in. There's no competition. Um, and, uh, and like, he doesn't have any backups cause none of the other guys that he has, you know, these carrying over from last year played at all last year. So it's like, you know, it's, a t- you know, even though like on the surface level, it, it might look like Oregon and UCLA's offensive line situations look similar when you dig a little deeper about like how they're managing the roster mm-hmm. in, in terms of like talent and experience and playing time and, and, and level of co- like inter team or intra team competition for the job to make sure you're getting the best guy, you know, uh, uh, available. And then you also have a backup for whoever loses out on the starting job. Like it's night and day difference friends you know yeah. so hey roster management um 100% and then like the defense that was the thing that i spent a lot of time talking about um it, it's really interesting because like they definitely like they finished 51st in f plus which is actually the fourth best in the pac 12 for anybody who's like oh you know this was the worst defense in the universe i understand it sort of felt that that way um and it was definitely worse than the offense and it definitely like sort of underperformed the talent but it wasn't like the worst defense in the world or anything it was it was a mediocre defense yeah. and it should have been better the way that oregon staff dealt with it was not like hitting reverse and saying we need to become more like a traditional defense the way that they dealt with it i can tell from the roster management moves was hitting the accelerator they were like we need to be even more of a mint defense so like they totally cleared out the outside linebacker room and the inside linebacker room just like got rid of almost all of them and just completely replaced them. Um, and a lot of the sort of depth at defensive line that didn't quite fit the way that, um, the, the, the DL is supposed to be. Um, and they got new safeties to challenge, even though they're returning, um, uh, like they returned all three of their like starters or starting level guys, Jamal Hill, uh, Brian Addison and, uh, and Steve Stevens at the safety positions, even though they returned all three of those guys, they brought in new guys, 
who are probably going to be the starters um, at those. So it's like they are really overhauled it and made it like mintier, as Adam Chimeo uh, said when I was talking <laughs> to him on the Quack 12 podcast. It's like this is the mintiest defense. Mintiest, so like, yeah, I like it. They, 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 they switched Jamal Hill from the nickel to the inside linebacker room. Um, uh, in my opinion, they're going to have the coach's kid, Cole Martin, the, the cornerback coach. Uh, they're going to have him be the new starting nickel because um, Bennett Williams left too. They brought in two transfers, Tyshing Johnson and, and Evan Williams, Bennett Williams' little brother, um, challenge the returning starters. And I think they're going to win those jobs. Um, the inside linebacker room, they brought in Justin Jacobs, um, who's like, he was a Sam uh, uh, linebacker for Iowa, which like in a 4-3 defense, that guy's more like a nickelback. And he's like 6'4", like he's really rangy. And like basically, and, and Jeffrey Bossa, who literally is a converted defense, DB. So like they're going to have two converted DBs and a, and a dude who's built like a DB um, be their inside linebacker room because in the mint defense, like that's how your linebackers play. Like they, they play like their pass defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's like, yeah, the, and the guys, they cleared out of the inside linebacker room. I mean, Sewell got drafted, but like Justin Flo, Keith Brown, Jackson LaDuke, like all of these guys are gone now. And, and and then look at the guys that they would recruit. They're all like rangy dudes too. Mm-hmm. So like, um, you know, Jackson and Mixon and Taggart, Taggart transferred out. But like, those are the three guys the staff recruited over the last two cycles. Look at their body types. They're not like the fire hydrant type of body type, like Sewell or Keith Brown were. No. They're the like, they look more like defensive backs because that's how yeah. they defensive. No, they're they're a Tro- Troy Die kind of kind of looking guys. Yeah. Uh, so like, that's what. Like, that's what you can get from this roster management is that, like, they want to remake the defensive roster to be to be more like that. Well, what all of those moves mean is that the defensive line has because the, the 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 mint defensive philosophy is drop everybody into into coverage because the pass hurts you more than the run. And so the defensive line has to spill the running back all on their own without linebacker help. Like, so it's like you, you get three big defensive linemen, and but they they have to do it all on their own. Like the linebacker doesn't help them at all. Um, And so they have, you know, they have Brandon Dorless and they have Keon Ware Hudson and they have um, uh, uh, Taki Taimani and they got Popo Amavai back from injury um, and they have Casey Rogers and they got Jordan Birch from South Carolina to be the weak side OLB. And I really like him. So they, you know, they have returning starters and they have the redshirt freshman at nose Ben Roberts. Um, You know, they, they have, you know, this, this core of very experienced guys as the like the front line of it who are all like you know great bodies for the front you know i've not no concerns about that i think they're ready to go there and you know and i think the staff does too obviously the question is that they cleared out all of the depth at all of those positions weak side olb strong side olb the nose the four eye the five tech all of those you know positions who play up along the line they cleared all the depth out all of it is gone Um, you know, Keanu Williams is gone. Afiase medically retired all the OLBs. I mean, literally all of them. I think there was nine guys who transferred out. Like it's like, I mean, it's extensive and the, and, and instead what all of the depth is going to be, is going to be true freshmen. And they're really talented true freshmen. Cause I mean, they're all blue chips. I mean, every single one of them is a blue chip, but like they're going to have to see significant playing time. You know, because you have to play 
you know, rotational guys. It's not like quarterback who tries to play every snap. Like it's significant rotational time is probably going to be going to true freshmen and in positions within the defensive front where like you have to do it all on your own. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, because the whole point of the mint defense is the linebackers drop into coverage immediately and aren't helping you with the run. So, like, yeah, that's the big question mark for Oregon. It's like, I hope these really talented true freshmen are for real and ready to play. Yeah. So it's but yeah, I mean, that that's why you get another great recruiter like Lanning. You know what I mean? What would yeah. you would you rather have uh, four and five star guys to fall back on or three star guys to fall back on? I, I I mean, but it's not falling back. Well, not falling it's not back, like but... these are the backups in, yeah. ca- in case guys get injured. I mean, they're gonna play. Yeah. You are gonna see Matteo Uyngale playing. Fa- fa- falling back in the sense Mikhail. in the sense of who left, I guess, not necessarily who's gonna yeah. play. This but I mean, that's the thing is that like they didn't. There, this was the thing that was really bold about it. That it was sort of like knock my socks off how bold it was. They knew that they had to do this, and. And so, like, I do appreciate I appreciate the roster management in the sense that, like, for every one of the positions that they have, they not just have a, a starter who they really believe in. And I think they should believe in because the, the guy that they have starting at the position grades out really well. But then they also got two backups, you know, so it's like three for one, which is the ratio that I like, you know, for every position that you have, you need to have three playable guys at that position. Yeah, you know, that's, you know, so like it's just a really basic rule of thumb that I have for, for when I'm writing these roster previews is that you need to have a three for one ratio for every position. And if you fail that test, I start yelling at anybody. Like I'm not yelling. Yeah. Anybody ever ever proved how important the third guy was, it was 2014 Ohio state. So, (laughs) so like, yeah, you know, I'm not yelling at Oregon for any position they are devoting, you know, they have a three to one ratio, you know, everywhere. Um, and at several positions more like four to one, um, it's just that for a lot of positions, uh, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's like experienced proven starter, uh, a, and then the second guy is like, he's maybe not a starter, but he's like an experienced, like a semi-experienced backup. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that guy, you go get him through the portal. And then the third guy is your developmental guy. Yeah. And for Oregon, that second guy isn't a guy that they went and got through the portal. Mm-hmm. It's another true freshman. Yeah. So, you know, they have the first guy and they have the third guy. And in fact, their third guy is better than almost everybody else's third guy. But their second guy. And and I criticize a lot of teams for not even going and getting the second guy. So, like, again, credit to Oregon for they got their second guy and they got their third guy and they did that consistently at every single position. So this is credit to Oregon and the talent level that they got for their second guy and their third guy is very high. So that's credit to Oregon. Uh, It's just that their second guy, his level of experience is for for these defensive line positions, you know, uh, for uh, the four I, the five tech, and the OLB positions, is true freshman or redshirt freshman, but you know, redshirted, which means he didn't play last year, so basically no experience. Yeah. And it's like that's a gamble, dude. You know, that's really saying I really, really believe in these true freshmen. And it's like two different true freshmen, you know, so like you're betting that like one of those two guys is going to be playable. Um, And so like it's decent 
odds, but like what happens if you crap out on both of them uh. and the starter has to go get Gatorade, <laughs> you know, like they're basically betting that that's not going to happen across four different positions that they're going to crap out at any of them. And it's like, that's, that's, okay, in football for sure. Now they're very talented, you know, like they recruited at this position better than anybody else. I mean, I'm not, that's not hyperbole. I'm not joking about that. I mean, they're I averaged out. You can read it in the article. It's a 0.9140 in the 247 composite. So like if, if anybody's gonna, gonna make that bet, it should be Oregon. I'm just saying it's a bet. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yep. All right. I think that'll do it for us this week. We'll wrap it up there. You get any parting words of wisdom for us, Adam? Uh, just enjoy your summer, Duck fans. Uh, it'll be gone before you know it. Uh, but uh, fall camp is only like a few weeks away. So, uh, yeah, strap in. Should be a fun time. Yeah, man, it's uh, uh, summer is fleeting. Oh, it's been a hot one. I, I read somewhere that uh, the uh, July 3rd was the hottest re- day that has ever been recorded. Um, not a lot of rain coming for us this month, but... It never rains on this podcast.